0: Uh, thanks for the great privilege of having your word and being able to study it freely. I thank you for the great honor and privilege of being able to share with your people here tonight. Pray, Lord, that you would quicken our minds and our hearts and our spirits as we look into the living word of God. We may not just hear it listen to it, but we might take it to heart and obey it. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, follow along. I'm going to be reading somewhat. From the American Standard Version, I kind of make a few changes of my own as we go through. That's a little, is that a little loud to you guys. It sounds horrible to me. Ooh. Okay, we're Hebrews chapter 2. We pick up my verse. as a verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying... What is man that thou remembers him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels, and thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands, and thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him, but we do see Jesus, who's been made for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now the first portion of the text there, that first verse and the quotation from the Old Testament is actually the last of a series of comparisons between Jesus and the angels. I think it was uh, Lowell a couple weeks back went through that in quite a bit of detail showing that the superiority of Jesus as opposed to the angels. And so just a quick review of that, that comparison is is. Like I said, it's five or six comparisons. It's eight references to angels. And it's not just a lighthearted comparison. It gets rather intense. In fact, almost, almost sarcastic. If you look with me over at verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. After the writer of Hebrews has gone on about the exalted nature and person and character of Jesus basically, in one word, about his deity or his divinity. After he's gone on and on about that in in 2 and 3, kind of piling up descriptions after descriptions of that, then he comes in verse 5, and just kind of in an offhanded way, kind of almost a dismissive way, kind of almost a sarcastic way, if you will, he says, "...to what angel has he ever said?" And then he goes on with comparison about Jesus and his exalted relationship with the Father. And then he does it again in 13, the exact same exact phrase, and the attitude or the the intensity is there throughout all of the comparisons, and it really culminates and concludes in our comparison, but it, it builds, and each one is showing the huge gap between the person and work and ministry of Jesus and the role of angels. So again, in verse 13, again, after comparing in just two verses out of the Old Testament, a bit vague and unclear as to details about the angels, but, but perfectly straightforward that the angels do serve God in a purpose. Uh, there's some indication that may that that's maybe uh, more limited to specific time and place and it's a temporary thing rather than Jesus serving for all of eternity. But it's just two quick verses there about angels and then he goes on and on. Verse after verse after verse after verse after verse about Jesus. And finally it's the verse 13 and again with that phrase, but to which of the angels has God ever said? And so the writer of Hebrews is trying right off the bat to give us an understanding of the gap, if you would, the huge gap of superiority and quality and finality and fulfillment and truthfulness and every other word that you can think of that exists between Jesus and everything else that has ever happened in the world. Uh, now, the truth of the matter, he's really not just talking about Angels. He's talking about everything that happened before Jesus. In fact, you look at verse one. That's what he says. God, and many, uh, God, after He was speaking long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many ways, in various forms, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. There's a very distinct uh, change in verb there. When he talks about God speaking in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a past participle, which means it was an ongoing act in the past. God was speaking in the past through the prophets, through the Old Testament. Uh, God was speaking in many and various ways. But then in verse two, he says, but in these last days, there's been a radical change. And now the verb changes to an aorist active, which means a completed act in past time. He's saying God was talking this way before, but now in Jesus... He's talking. He has spoken. He has given us the final revelation and complete truth and the complete plan of his work of salvation for mankind. Now, um, you ask then, you would think, why does he hammer on the angels so much? If he's talking about everything, if he's talking about the angels and he is going to talk about in Hebrews, he's talking about the angels here, he's going to talk later about Moses, he's going to talk about Moses and Joshua, he's going to talk about the ceremonies. he's going to talk about the temple, he's going to talk about the blood, he's going to talk about the elements in the temple, he's going to talk about all of those things and when he talks about them, he's going to do the same thing that he did here. He's going to show that Jesus is a better sacrifice, Jesus is a better, more valuable blood, Jesus is a better mediator, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. So why does he hammer the angels here so much? Why does he go on and on and pick on the angels? Well, I think there's two historical reasons for that. First of all, in the writer of Hebrews, and you'll have to check with these other guys, you know, Greg and Lowell and Pastor about who the writer is. That's beyond my pay grade to figure that one out. But uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, here... When, when, he, when he is talking, he, he talks and focuses upon the angels for, for two historical reasons. The first reason is that in his contemporary history, there was a, a movement either trying to come into the church or Christians who were already in the church trying to go back to their Jewish beliefs. And we, we know f- that the Jews took all of the things that God given them in the Old Testament and distorted them. God gave them all of these great ceremonies and and they distorted those ceremonies and misused those ceremonies and misinterpreted those ceremonies and misunderstood those ceremonies. And they did the same thing with the angels. In fact, at the time that the writer of Hebrews was writing this, and this is who he's writing to, there was a very widespread teaching in Jewish circles, probably moving into Jewish Christians, recently converted uh, Christians, circles, that there were gonna be, two messiahs, and that they were, one was gonna be a kind of a kingly one, one was gonna be a kind of a political one, but they were both gonna be subject to the angel, uh, archangel uh, Michael. And, And so the writer of Hebrews wants to make very clear, listen, listen, angels are real, and angels have a role for God to play, but listen, in the revelation and in the work and in the ministry of Jesus, It's over. There is going to be no additional revelation beyond what Jesus had had brought brought to us in the opening of, of the New Testament and then throughout the New Testament with the inspiration of the apostles and the disciples who wrote the New Testament. So, how what he's saying in his own historical circumstances, he's warning against a false teaching that was coming into the, into the church. Now there's another historical reason and that historical reason um, is our history. For some reason, humankind are, oh, are open to be misled, by things that appear to be mysterious and mystical. I mean, Jesus himself said when he, in talking about his second coming in Matthew 24, he said there's gonna be false prophets and what are they gonna do? They're gonna do false signs and wonders. Why? To lead people astray. Human beings are drawn into something that is just a little bit mysterious, a little bit mystical, a little bit beyond their complete understanding, and are easily misled that way. In fact, Apostle Paul warns us against um, the fact that Satan himself disguises himself as what? An angel of light. And he even speaks in Galatians, Paul speaks about the fact, he says, if I come to you, even if an angel from heaven comes to you and brings you some other teaching about, that I have brought about Jesus Christ, and he's very harsh here, he says, let him be accursed. In fact, let's look at that. I want you to see that because I don't want you to think I'm being hard on, on this or that the... Uh, Hebrew writers been unnecessarily hard on this. If you look at Galatians chapter one, verse six, Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That word amazed is, is actually, the, the, I'm, I'm repulsed by this. I'm offended by this. It's not just, oh, it's a surprise. It's, I, I am repulsed. It's reprehensive to me. I'm amazed that you are deserting him, which is really, there is really no other gospel, only that there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here it is, verse eight. But even though we, Apostle Paul as an apostle, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached let him be accursed strong word means let him be set aside for destruction it's not you know let's discuss it with this fellow Different people have different ideas. It's if anybody brings another gospel contrary to the one that the apostle Paul had brought, he says that person should be accursed. And just in case we missed it in 9, he repeats it again. And as we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. So what's the answer? How can we keep from being, as it were, sucked in or deceived or misled into false teaching, particularly in this area that might have to do with, with angels. Because you see, we're not told a lot about the angels. I mean, Paul, he, here, Hebrews talked, he's referenced them eight times, but he really didn't tell us anything about them other than that they're inferior to Jesus. Um, and we've seen that Paul gives us some very strong warnings and we know there's lots of false teachings that have come into the church. Joseph Smith, by an angel. Muhammad, by an angel. Shirley McLean, and many, many others about angels. So what is the answer? Well, the answer is given in the layout of Hebrews here, but then in the, in the culmination that we have in, chap, in verse 5 there, He did not subject the angel, he did not subject to the angels the world to come, verse 8, but instead he subjected everything unto the feet of Jesus. So, this is what will protect us from false teaching, being deceived by false teaching, whether it comes from, as uh, Jesus talks about, a false prophet, a false apostle, a false teacher, or a false angel. And it's this. A true teacher or a true messenger from God or a true angel, whether you're talking about a supernatural being or you're talking about a natural being that is a messenger from God. A true messenger of God will always exalt Jesus. Always exalt Jesus. A true messenger of God will always exalt the word of God. A true messenger of of God will always, always, always refuse any uh, movement or response or call to worship them or any other person, place, or thing or exalt anything above Jesus. You do that, you hold true to those things, you're going to be safe. The opposite is true, though. If there's any kind of teacher, whether it be a human messenger of God or whether it be a supernatural, supposed supernatural messenger of God, if that person is not exalting the word of God, if that person is elevating any other kind of revelation, any other kind of writing up to the even equal to the word of God, much less above the word of God, if that person is not exalting the person work of Jesus Christ, if he is not specifically Uh, recognizing and and submitting to Jesus as the unique and one and only true son of God in human flesh, and if he is in any way trying to exalt himself, you better run fast and ask questions later. Get out of there as fast as you can. Because indeed, there's many things spiritual that we do not understand and that it is dangerous for us to dabble in in. Well, back to our text then, back to verse 5, and he said there that it's not, the world to come is not subject to angels. Then down in verse 8, he said, but instead he subjected all things under his feet, and then he repeats it again for us in 9, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that's pretty comprehensive. First he said all two times. Then he said he left nothing outside of the subjection to Jesus Christ. Now there's a problem there. You know the problem. I mean, he's going to tell us the problem in writing, but you know what the problem is. All you have to do is look around, especially in our world and society today. I mean, nearly every country on the face of the earth is on the verge of legitimizing homosexual marriage. Uh, There is no greater affront and attack against God than that. He created sexuality in the book of Genesis. He created marriage. To attack that is to attack the very person of God himself. Uh, You look in the church, you can see everything is not subject Jesus in the church. I don't know if you know it or not, but less than 5% of Christian colleges teach that the book of Genesis is literal history and that God physically and literally and personally created the world. Less than 50% of churches believe and teach that today. And I could go on and on and on and, and not to be personal, but we could look at our own lives and we find out not everything. Is subject to Jesus. Well, a little bit later in the verse we get the answer, but we need to get an explanation first of all: why that is true. If indeed this is what God has done, if this is God's will and God's purpose, why is it not happening? Why is why are was it which is the right pronoun there? Th- why aren't ev- why is not everything subject? to Jesus in the world today. Turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 where we get the explanation. I mean we can look around we can be perplexed and we can wonder what is going on. Uh, The God's word tells us that everything that God has placed everything under the subjection of Jesus and it's categoric. It's it uh, even, even uses uh, his feet under his feet. Uh, it's a powerful statement, and yet we just don't see that. So 2 uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9 gives us an explanation for why that's the way it is. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance or that all would be saved. So the reason that Jesus is not exercising his his power of having everything subjected to him uh, is because he is patient and kind and long-suffering, and he desires that everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We send these gentlemen, these brothers out to witness every single week because as a church, we're committed to that, to seeing people be saved. Not everybody is saved. You know that. In fact, most people aren't saved And so Jesus is not, although he's been given that authority and he has that authority, and we do know one day he will will exercise that authority. One day he's going to literally and physically and historically and personally come back again. And the Bible tells us when he does, every knee will bow. Now some of those knees are going to be bowing in what? Worship and honor and adoration and love and all of that. But some of the other knees are going to be bowing in what? Abject fear for the judgment of God. (laughs) One of these days that's going to happen. But in the meantime, he's not doing that. He is working in his church and through his church to reach more and more people before that day. Now... That's the uh, explanation for that situation, but we still need a little bit of help because it's kind of troubling, isn't it? It's kind of discouraging, isn't it? I know pastor has mentioned up here a couple of times and he and I have talked about that several times. We look around what's happened in our country and, and, and uh, it's discouraging sometimes. You look around, it's happening with the church, and, and it's a challenge to your faith sometimes. So we have an explanation, but we need an answer. What can we do in this interim when we, we know that, that it's supposed to be subject to Christ, but it isn't being? In fact, if anything else, it seems almost the opposite. What is the answer? Well, the answer is back in our text, verse 9. But we... See Jesus. Now, I don't usually say this, and you may misunderstand me, and I'll clarify and make sure you don't, but he's not saying we see Jesus. He doesn't mean we see Jesus. If you say you see Jesus, you're a false prophet because Jesus isn't coming now, he's coming later. If you say you see Jesus, he's not really talking. If he's talking about seeing Jesus, he would go on and describe what he looked like. He would, you know, his facial features, his height, you know, his, his build, his, his dress. He'd describe something about him seeing. When he used the word see, he's not using the word see to mean see, just like we don't always use that, you know, quite frequently, after a long discussion of what it is she really means, I say to my wife, oh, I see what you mean. (laughs) I don't see it, even if she tells me. Now, what I mean when I say I see, I mean I understand, I understand. And that's what the answer is. The answer is that that he's not saying the answer for us to see Jesus. The answer is for us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. Because that's what he goes on to talk about. He doesn't go on to talk about what Jesus looks like. He goes on to talk about who Jesus is and what he has done. Verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who has been made a little lower than the angels... For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The answer to that discouragement and that disappointment and that turmoil of not seeing things the way they're supposed to be, the answer is that we need to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. You see too often in the church my experience is many Christians just settle for seeing Jesus. They just come forward and see Jesus and accept him as their savior. It's kind of like fire insurance. In case you don't know I'm an I used to be a pastor 30 years but now I'm insurance salesman. You know everybody owns a house gets fire insurance, don't they? Hardly ever read the policy. Put it up in the attic somewhere. They just go through the road, meet the requirements, pay them premiums, and they never read it. And then somehow they're surprised when something happens because, you know, I can say it's a miniature change because the policy is full of exclusions. <laughs> this is excluded. You ever had that? This is excluded. This is excluded. They never read the policy. And they never really do things, really, that they should to make the house more safe from fire. They just, oh, well, I got fire insurance. Anything happens, insurance can take care of it. Many Christians treat their profession of faith in Christ the same way. This is fire insurance. They put the Bible in the attic and they never read it. They don't understand the requirements. They don't understand the calling. They don't understand, as, as, as Greg was trying to explain to us, the, the privilege and the benefits that we miss out if we don't read the policy and we don't use the policy. I think, spending some time, I hope, spending some time in reviewing who Jesus is and what he's done Will motivate you. I know it motivates me. Turn to Philippians chapter nine. Excuse me, Philippians chapter two, verse nine. Where I think it was one of the best explanations anywhere in the scripture about who Jesus is and what he's done. And I think if we understand the cost of those two things. You see, if your insurance premium was a little more expensive, well, I'll put it a lot more expensive. Pay a lot more attention to it. I think the same thing is true about our salvation. If we realize how expensive it was, not to us, if we realize the full cost to Jesus... To be made a little bit lower than the angels and to suffer and die on the cross for the sins of everyone. I think it would motivate us. So look with me Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to pick up at verse 5. Actually, we're going to go probably to nine, verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves, among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here it comes. Who, although he existed in the very form and image of God, he did not count equality with God a thing that he should hold on to. But he gave up his privileges taking the form of a servant or slave and being found in the likeness of men and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I think as Christians, we all have, have heard and thought about the cost of the cross for Jesus. And I do not want to uh, minimize that in any way whatsoever. Crucifixion was was probably most probably the most horrendous method of death that mankind has ever thought of. In fact, the whole purpose of, cru- of crucifixion wasn't to kill someone. That's why they usually had to plow the the sword into their side, like they did to Jesus. The whole purpose of, cru- of crucifixion was to prolong the process of dying as long as possible to cause suffering. I don't know about you, but I don't fear death. I, I, you know, I, I don't fear death. I look forward to death because I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be with God. But you know what? I really fear the process of dying. I, I, I'm not too good with that, the process. Uh, wife and I were in an accident um, Complete rollover of our car and our trailer, and um, it will forever remain a secret who was driving. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't fear death. I, I was I was praying to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, can you, can you make it quick and easy? <laughs> I really don't care. Uh, and can you take me, not her? Let let her be okay. You know. Could, could you make the branch, because we rolled over and went down a cliff into some trees, could you make the branch just go real quick right through the old heart and snuff me out? I mean, I really don't want to lay in the bed and linger in pain and maybe, maybe I'm not spiritual and, you know, maybe I don't have enough faith, but I, 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 the process of dying it really bothers me. Dying, being dead... That's that'd be okay. In fact, like Pastor says, the older I get, the better it sounds, because the closer I get to it. So, um, I don't even remember now why I went off on that. So, <laughs> uh, somebody else could help me if I find my notes here back where I was. But uh, oh yes, I didn't. I don't want to minimize the cost, the paint. The cost of pain, the suffering of the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. But you know that. You've heard that. I want to talk about the cost he paid before and after the cross. You see, this verse says, before the cross ever came, Jesus paid a huge price. Because he, Jesus himself talked about it this way in uh, John chapter, uh, I forgot the chapter, but in the book of John He's uh, his, his, his talking, it's chapter 17. He's, he's finished his ministry and he's praying to the Father, high priestly prayer, and he says, Father, restore me to the glory that I had with you since the beginning of creation. Think about that. Not, not just that Jesus, and, and this is one of those mysteries, because Jesus was God, yes, fully God, as if he was never man, and fully man as if he was never God. But it's also talking about there, Jesus himself is talking about he had an intimate, intense, personal uh, fellowship, relationship, interaction with God the Father. I, and then he voluntarily... Gave that up. I don't know if there's any way we can kind of enter into that, but I think I can share a little illustration with you. If you're a parent, you have either already gone through this or it's on the horizon for you one of these days. And aside from the death of my mother and the death of my mother-in-law, the thing I'm talking about is the most gut-wrenching, empty feeling you will ever have in your life. And that's when you finally have to let go of your child to become an adult. And you know that relationship will never be the same. He's not in here, so I could say, I can remember when that no good young Turk drove off with my little girl. Now, I I kinda liked the guy, really, but I didn't like the idea that he was taking my little girl and now he was gonna be the one in her life, not me. And that it's unique. Parent, child, it's intense. It's intimate. No one who has never been there can understand what it's like. And you, you have to do it. It's healthy. You have to let go. And there are some benefits and the blessings of them becoming adult. And there's something to rejoice in that. But you do lose something that you never gain back again. Now, I've had to do it three times. I had to give my daughter. To give up my son. I had to give up my two daughters, two twin daughters, who are, I don't know if you know, but they're autistic, and we thought they were going to be with us forever. But somehow they got a job up at a Christian campground about an hour and a half away, and we had to let them go, and it was the most gut wrenching, empty feeling. And now I'm facing it doing with my grandkids. One of them's 15, right? She's already stopped coming down. We live in the same house. She's already stopped a long time ago coming down, sit on my lap, hug and kiss me. She only comes down when she wants money or food. <laughs> now, that's just a bare measurement of the expense that Je- of the cost that Jesus paid. He gave that up willingly, voluntarily. We didn't ask him. And God didn't demand him. He just paid the price. The other cost is after. After the cross. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5. I am going to go a little bit over, Pastor, if you read this. If you watch this video, not long, but a little. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin. Now we don't understand that either because we all known sin all of our lives. The moment you were conscious you knew sin, and you've known sin, and we almost get cavalier about sin. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner, you know. But, and in our society today, they teach against the whole idea of a defiling nature of sin. But the Bible presents sin as a despicable, defiling. And it says here, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. I'm gonna give you one illustration and then I'm gonna close of what that must have been for Jesus. It wasn't the crucifixion that killed him. I don't even think it was the spear in his side that killed him. I think it was the defiling of sin and the abandonment of his father when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know why God forsaken him? God had made him sin. I want you to think of the person in your life that means more to you than any other person. The person whose pride in you, whose honor in you uh, means more to you than anything else. For me, it's my mother, and my mother-in-law and my wife. Now I want you to think about becoming something that they hate, that is despicable to them, that is reprehensive to them, that is so bad that they would forsake you and disavow you. That's what Jesus paid for you, paid for me. One last verse and I close. From Luke chapter 6, verse 46. If we are going to call him Lord, Lord, and he wants us to, he glories in it, he loves it, he's, done, he's paid the price that we might do that, but if we're going to call him Lord, Lord, why aren't we going to do that? What he tells us to do. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks for looking at your word. We pray that it will quicken our hearts as we've thought about the price that Jesus paid for our salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would never be satisfied just to be saved, but that we would push forward and onward. That we might experience the privilege of the righteousness that you have for us. That we would understand that you died not only to forgive us, but you died to enable us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Until you do come back to exercise your subjection over everything. And then we can bow in honor, adoration, joy, and fulfillment of a life lived in obedience to God. We pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.